Before I explain who sponsored today's episode, first I have to talk about parallel universes. If we spend long enough building up speed, we could end up transferring to a parallel universe where everything is the same, but the only thing that's different is what series I decided to do this podcast about. Because you see, when I decided I was going to do a podcast, I had a lot of options on the table. I mean, Final Fantasy's been done to death, but I still love it, so that was there. Or maybe a different RPG series, like Dragon Quest. Maybe I could have done something more traditional. You know, something about Mario, or Sonic, or Resident Evil, or Pokemon. Today's episode is brought to you in spirit by another series I almost undertook, Mega Man. We're mixing Mega Man with our home turf of the Toho series. In today's fan game of choice, Mega Mari, Marisa no Yabo, on today's episode of the Immaterial and Missing Podcast? Hello, and welcome to the Immaterial and Missing Podcast. My name's Carlisle, and this show is the chronicle of one horrible Western weeb's attempt to pronounce a whole lot of Japanese names and get all of them wrong in the process. Oh, and I guess to also play as many different Toho games as I can. If you're not familiar with the show and this is your first episode, welcome! The Toho series is a series of doujin, meaning independently released, essentially Japan's equivalent of the indie gaming scene. For a variety of reasons, including the creator Zun's openness about allowing other people to in turn create fan works of his own works, the Toho series has taken off as an absolute phenomenon of Japanese indie gaming culture. Today's game is a 2006 title by Tassoguer Frontier, also known as Tassofro, Twilight Frontier, you know, those guys who actually got to team up with Zun to make Immaterial and Missing Power two years prior to this title. They would also go on to continue to work with Zune in the future to make titles like Hisoden Soku, all the way up to Antinomi of Common Flowers, and they're still working with Zune in the development of Goyoko Ibun, which has been in development for two years and might come out one of these days. To put the timeline in perspective, for those who are wondering what characters and music and stuff to expect in this game, we're between 9.5, Shoot the Bullet, and 10, Mountain of Faith. Despite the fact that this is by Tassofro, this is not an official game, this is within the fan work umbrella. Despite that, many of the staff who did directly work on Immaterial and Missing Power, such as its musicians, were at work on this game, so it definitely has a little bit more of a familiarly recognizable feel to it, as something in kind of like that gray space between fan work and official. The setup for this game is about what you would expect from Toho games that hit right in the post-EOSD era, in that it's playing off of the whole joke of Marissa stealing Patchouli's books. This time, Patchouli has gotten so fed up with Marissa's nonsense that she's decided to turn her library into a mechanized fortress and has sought the help of various Toho characters to defend her fortress, characters who also have a beef with Marissa. Naturally, Marissa isn't going to take this lying down. There's books to steal, uh, and also Alice is there. Now, if you're not familiar with the Mega Man series, the Mega Man series was a Capcom property that began on the Nintendo Entertainment System and continues to this day. 
Typically, it is more defined by, like, a lightly futuristic setting. Not completely unrecognizable, but very, like, industrial. Robots are running around, yada yada, as opposed to Gensokyo's, like, fantasy Japan. It's a very different aesthetic. But the core ideas of the Mega Man series actually kind of fit Marissa very well. Marissa's known habit of stealing spells from her opponents kind of becomes a thing here. The traditional gimmick of the Mega Man series was that whenever Mega Man defeated a boss in a stage, Mega Man would gain a weapon used by that boss and then could use it against his opponents. So this provides an extremely ample opportunity for Marissa to just yoink the spells of her opponents in order to create a differing arsenal. This is closest in functionality to the second Mega Man game back on the NES, which is to say that your options at the start of the game are exceptionally limited. You can run around left to right, this is a traditional platformer, you can shoot, and you can jump, and that's actually it at the start of the game. Those who are used to later Mega Man games may be expecting dashing, sliding, the rush coil and rush jet, no. You get none of that to begin with here. No charge shot, no nothing. The one thing that does set this game apart at the start is the fact that you have two different playable characters. At any time, you can open up the pause screen and switch from Marissa to Alice, or vice versa as desired. They maintain separate health bars, and at the beginning of the game, the only difference between them is that they have a different shot type. Marissa fires off single Stardust missiles that are just decently powerful projectiles. Alice, meanwhile, while holding down the button, will fire out a concentrated laser that just immediately goes across the screen and lingers around. The laser, in general, is easier to hit enemies with, it is easier to deal with groups with, but it does less damage to a single target, especially if you are far away, because there's actually, like, it does a little bit more damage up close. True to the Toho form, this game does implement some aspects of the bullet hell genre that the Toho games are. You're going to see a hell of a lot more bullets flying on screen, you're going to see a hell of a lot more enemies, especially later in the game, coming at you than you would expect in a normal Mega Man game. To compensate for that, your hitbox true to bullet hell fashion, is smaller than expected. So a lot of the times you can actually dodge and weave through attacks that you will look at them in any other platformer and it'll be like, oh, that would be impossible. No, it's, it's possible in this game, but it's very tricky, especially if you have to jump. That said, as far as some platformers have gone, using the Toho name, this is definitely a remarkably reasonable game. It's still tough, don't get me wrong, but this is like, this isn't a Super Marissa World situation here. This is, this is a reasonable game, assuming you don't make certain mistakes. See, the other innovation that this game has, I'll discuss the mechanic of it right now and then get into the details after we cover some of the first stages, is that whenever you defeat a boss, they drop a capsule onto the ground in this game. Whichever of Marissa or Alice picks up that capsule is the one who actually gains the weapon. And most importantly, the two characters gain completely different weapons based on which one you use. However, you can only get that capsule once. If you decide to get, say, Reimu's weapon on Marissa, then on that playthrough, you cannot get Alice's weapon. You have to pick and choose which powers you want to use from each character. And I will tell you straight up, this is both really, really cool and also really brutal. There are some of these powers that make the game, especially towards the end of the game, drastically easier than other powers. But before we get any further, let's start visiting some familiar faces. True to a Mega Man fashion, this game allows you to select any of eight bosses to begin the game with, and you can do them in whatever order you so choose. And so let's get straight into it.
first stage we're going to cover is mostly the recommended starting stage for this game for a couple different reasons. Unsurprisingly, in terms of difficulty, the easiest fight in this game would in fact be our ice fairy friend, Cyrano. Cyrano's stage is very, very simple mechanically. There aren't really any complex or interesting enemies in it, other than a cameo from Lily White. Mostly, it's just a whole lot of platforming over pits that, as long as you take your time and make sure you clear out enemies before you jump onto the next platform, you're going to be fine. Towards the end, the stage does introduce some ice physics, and the ice physics in this game, you start walking and you will just slide across the room. You need to actively jump to stop them. It is severe ice physics, but it's also very controllable ice physics, so it's not that bad. Those ice physics carry over into the boss fight with Cyrano herself. Cyrano is a little bit more dangerous than you might be expecting from Cyrano. Her patterns include large, dense patterns of ice shots that, if you could just slightly move, would be pretty okay, but this is an ice physics room, you can't. She also likes to create random smatterings of icicles that drop from the ceiling, and occasionally she generates a massive snowball in front of herself that she launches a couple seconds later and that you have to time your jump over. The biggest advantage for Cyrano is that she is kind of weak to your basic weapons. You can kind of just damage race her and there's a good chance you'll win, especially if, you know, you die in the fight, you revive, and now both Marissa and Alice have full health. All of the first eight bosses in this game also have kind of like an enrage mechanic, where they get more difficult when they hit about 25% of their health left. In Cerno's case, it just starts steadily raining icicles the entire time. One thing to note in this game, if you're used to other Mega Man games, or just the general like idea of you defeat a boss and all the bullets clear off on the screen, that doesn't happen in this game. You need to be very careful to ensure that until you actually pick up the capsule that the boss drops, that you're not going to die from anything they've left floating around. It can be a little bit rude at times. Still, it's Cyrano. It's easy enough. I'm going to skip the stage that Cyrano's weapon would be effective against. This is a Mega Man-esque game. Basically, different weapons work to varying degrees on different bosses, and every boss has a weakness that makes them take major damage. And I'm just going to kind of jump around a little bit, but also because I want to leave the stage that Cyrano's super effective against for last, because I found it the most frustrating. So let's jump over to Yuiko's stage. Yuiko's stage has a very, like, classically Japanese palace sort of feel to it with a whole bunch of cherry blossom patterns on the walls and everything. It's it's very pretty. One thing that does make an appearance here is a Mega Man tradition called the Yoku Blocks, which is a pattern of appearing and disappearing blocks that you need to time your jumps over. It's here in a couple stages. This is the only place where it's really likely to kill you if you're bad at it. But compared to the reputation that Mega Man games traditionally have for the use of this mechanic, it's actually done pretty fair here. In its worst segment, where you have to kind of run blocks over a long line of spikes. There's actually two layers of them, where if you fail to jump onto one, you're likely to just fall onto the bottom layer and have a second chance. It's actually well thought out. Other than that, there isn't a whole lot to discuss about this stage. Yuyuko herself is actually a very, very interesting boss fight. She walks around, she teleports, and she'll reappear at different elevations, sometimes a little bit out of your reach without using special weapons. Mostly, though, she has a lot of slower attacks, like throwing up a bunch of butterflies that when they hit the top of the screen will eventually come back down as bullets, or creating like a rotating shield around herself that she'll start walking forward and teleport somewhere else, but that rotating shield will still keep going slowly across the stage. The big thing with Yuiko as a boss is that all of her attacks tend to be very, very slow, but because of that, she will oftentimes have two or three of them active at a time, and they will be overlapping a bit unpredictably and you need to be ready for it. Also, when you make her mad, she will just teleport into the center and just start firing laser after laser directly at your location, but that also kind of makes her easy because now you know exactly where she is and she's easy to hit. 
Jumping to another fairly simple and fairly easy stage, we have the Bamboo Forest, home of Race and Inaba. This stage not only doesn't have a whole lot to talk about mechanically, other than there being a ton of like spiked bamboo shoots that you could fall into that act as instant death, but actually it's kind of a good opportunity to talk about how sometimes this game is not super well level designed. Like, partially the level design in this stage is boring, but it also commits a couple dumb movements. Like, there's a couple rooms in this stage where in order to climb up to the next screen, you need to climb a ladder that is literally located behind your health bar. You can't see it? It's a touch dumb. Another dumb thing, there is an invisible path you can take to reach a side room in this stage. There's side rooms in a lot of stages in this game, if you bother to look for them. It gets you a weapon tank. In the Mega Man series, there are E-tanks and various different tanks that are basically items you can store that will restore your health or your weapon energy that you can basically use on command later. In this game, if you game over while you have those, and you're probably going to when you're going across multiple stages, but if you game over you lose those, and like it makes me wonder why they bothered putting a cap of holding four tanks at all at all in this game, because you're never going to get anywhere close to it unless you get really good at this game, and by the time you're really good at this game, you don't need it. Anyway though, general complaining aside, Rayson is a fun boss fight. She spends a lot of time jumping around and firing like small spreads of bullets or wide spreads that you'll have to maneuver through. If you keep close to her, it's fairly easy to dodge most of her attacks. She does, of course, have a couple attacks that play with illusions, like leaving behind clones of herself that'll also fire at you, and she does have explosive bullets, which I believe was a thing she gained in Immaterial and Missing Power. Not really that hard, but actually, like, fairly fun and fairly active of a boss because she is fairly aggressive. Speaking of aggressive, let's head to Yomu's stage, which, as you would expect, are the stairs to the spirit world. We don't begin by climbing them, though. Aside from a guard bright and kind of ugly background, we actually need to cross to the other side by jumping on Komachi's boat first, and taking a ferry across while dealing with a whole bunch of just loose spirits floating around and coming at us very slowly. Then it's time for stairs. It is time for so much stairs. This this game really likes its stairs. And to be fair, stairs, stairs in this kind of platforming where most of your weapons are aimed straight ahead absolutely make the game tougher, because it basically makes it difficult for you to have weapons that deal with with the enemies that are coming at you, you need to very carefully like step back and time how you're handling things because you just don't have the ease of hitting them that a straight left to right section would give. But also, it comes up a hell of a lot in this game that there's just stairs. God, there's so many enemies on these stairs. This stage has pretty high enemy density. Not as bad as some of the like stages afterward on these first eight fights, but man. Anyway though, Yomu herself is actually a really fun fight. Instead of a flat square arena, there's actually like platforms risen up in the middle that make the ground uneven, which actually really works to your benefit because Yomu for some reason likes to run around, but she won't like jump up on ledges most of the time. And that gives you some room against her, which is really good because her main attack is like really wide cleaves that also deflect bullets. The fact that they deflect bullets gives Alice a huge advantage as a character here, by the way, because you can easily keep the laser on Yomu, whereas uh, Marissa's bullets are going to have a hard time actually landing. Mostly, though, Yomu's pretty easy to deal with. She gets a little scary when she's berserk, because she'll send Mion up to the top of the screen, and then Mion will float there and just slowly spread large red bullets, but it's pretty simple, honestly. Anyway, we're at the halfway mark, so let's go say hello to the normally co-protagonist, Reimu.
naturally, we are invading the Hakurei Shrine, and we do get a couple fun enemy designs in the stage as a result of that, in that we do actually get attacked by Reimu's donation boxes. We also have to deal with a lot of yin-yang orbs bouncing along at us that most of our weapons cannot interact with, we just have to avoid them. 9.5 having just happened, Aya does in fact have a cameo in this game during this stage. Her wins will basically push you back. There's never a point where it's like she's pushing you back over spikes like I would have expected, but there is a couple points where she could knock you backwards and force you to like retreat back around and redo a little bit of platforming in order to proceed. Point is, it's not as bad as it could have been. Reimu's boss fight, her big theme tends to be big attacks but that leave clear gaps where you can run through. Like, she might create a giant dense circle of talismans around herself, but then will aim the entire thing to coalesce on your position and you just need to time a good jump over it. The real tricky part with Reimu's stage is that at about every 25% of her HP that you cut off, she will summon a bouncing orb to just hang around the stage. That orb's not going to go away, unless you have a weapon that can specifically destroy it, which I think is Eren's weapon. You can't actually remove this from the battlefield, and it's going to bounce around and it's going to deflect your shots, and when she gets really critical on HP, she's just going to stand there and keep summoning them over and over again. Basically, you want to beat her really quickly. Next, let's head to the Scarlet Devil Manor to head to Remilia's stage. It is set in the gilded interior of the Scarlet Devil Manor itself. There's two things in particular that I want to note about the stage. The first is a joke that I'm only familiar with because I'm really familiar with Mega Man, which is Mei Ling's cameo appearance. Mei Ling's strategy in this game is literally to just run at you and then do like a short hop to try to like face kick you, and it struck me that that's basically the exact same pattern as the guard dog enemies in the Mega Man DOS game, which maybe it wasn't a deliberate reference, because Mega Man DOS never even released in Japan. Like, that is a deep cut level of reference there for a Japanese game to reference an English-only game, says the English podcaster talking about a Japanese-only game. But also, Mei Lang is the guard dog. It's just, it's too good. It's too good, and it's the only good thing about this stage, because remember what I said about stairs? Yeah, this stage is climbing up stairs, except also the stairs have banisters, they have railings that are, like, over top of all the bullets and, like, the display of all the other, like, character sprites and enemies and everything. Seeing anything that is going on while climbing these stairs absolutely sucks. I hate this stage. It's not a fun stage to play. Fortunately, Romilly is a fun boss fight. She's very, very quick and mobile. She likes to, like, kick off of the ceiling and do dive bombs into the ground or, like, bounce off the walls. She has the ability to spread herself out into a bunch of bats. The bats will try to converge on your position, and while they're flying to that location, they actually have, like, full hitboxes, and you have to, like, try to remember where they spread out to so you can time your jumps to avoid taking hits as they come back together. It's a fun fight. But yeah, okay boss, fun joke, crappy stage. Fortunately, the other stage set in the Scarlet Devil Manor for Sakoya is much better, partially because we're going through like the basement and then into the clock tower instead, so we get a whole lot more visual variety, but also because like this stage actually has some stage gimmicks to it, like spike platforms that will try to drop on you when you get close, or traps that come out of the floor. There's a part with like a mixture of Yoku blocks and moving platforms that is actually like it's a little terrifying to look at because there's a lot going on, but it's also surprisingly fair. And there's a little bit of spots where you like weave back and forth through rooms to find your path through and stuff. It's just, it is a fun and interesting stage by comparison to the other Scarlet Devil Manor stage that was a mess. 
Sakuya pretty much fights like you would expect of her. She has, like, she can teleport around. She can throw her knives in a variety of different patterns, like creating small walls of them on the ground that, like, slow down after a couple seconds to kind of trip you up. She never actually directly stops time, which was kind of a surprise. I really did expect it to be used here because that is a classic Mega Man gimmick. But she does still effectively use the world when she's enraged, jumping up, throwing a huge circle of knives, and then technically stopping time to rearrange the direction all of them are facing at random. We just see, like, the snap of them all changing. It's, I don't know, Sakui is a pretty fun fight. She's not difficult, she's fun. And with how many bullets and stuff there are, the idea of her just abruptly stopping time and projectiles continuing to move probably would have actually been really, really brutal. Finally, the stage I don't want to talk about, Aaron's stage. As expected, Aaron's stage does take place in Iaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiaiai
After completing four stages, Marissa will get her signature broom. This acts kind of like the Rush Jet or Super Arrow from the classic Mega Man games, in that you can drop it down in front of you and then you can jump on and ride it. It isn't super fast, but the fact that it's a creatable platform is actually kind of important. By comparison, Alice has the slightly awesome Shanghai Doll, not quite finished. I'm not sure exactly what triggers getting this. I think it's getting four different Alice weapons specifically, but I'm not 100% sure. References on the Toho wiki are actually somewhat contradictory. Essentially, this is Alice in her default form with her laser beam. But, while you are firing her laser beam, Shanghai is going to fly out, lock onto an enemy, hover a little bit above it, and just fire extra bullets down at it. Shanghai does not require you to actually hit an enemy with Alice's laser, so she can get enemies that are in some really awkward places. It's actually a half-decent weapon. But let's be real. What we're here to talk about is the different abilities that we have gotten from each of the different Toho characters to date. I've tried to do this worst to best because I, I like making lists, but of course that's made a little bit more difficult by the fact that some of these weapons are imbalanced. The point is, is I'll talk about a character's weapons as a pair in roughly the order that I think the best weapon in that pair results in, and I'll give my thoughts on the two different weapons and which one you should take. First up, for worst weapons in the game, unfortunately goes to Sir now. If you pick up Cyrano's weapon as Marissa, you will get the Ice Vulcan. This is based on the Needle Cannon from Mega Man 3. It is just basically like a Gatling gun type effect that has a little bit of a random spread up and down to it. It isn't super impressive in any aspect. It is decent, it is fairly quick. Anything that doesn't flat out deflect it will actually be able to be taken down at a reasonable pace with it. It's just kind of an ease of use weapon. Alice, meanwhile, gets the White Rose Cluster, which is a very distinctive weapon. Essentially, while you hold the button, Alice creates an ice ball in front of her, and that ball will steadily grow across a couple additional stages. Eventually, it will launch on its own, or if you take damage, it will fire off. The trick here is that once it has started growing, this ice ball will hang around. You can hold it over enemies and deal damage to them without actually launching the attack. So if you can line it up correctly, you can kind of just bowl through a bunch of enemies by holding this out in front of you, except you better know those enemy patterns really well, because again, if they fire a bullet or something, you're not going to be able to see it, because it's going to go behind the weapon itself, aggravatingly enough. But getting hit will cause you to launch the weapon early, and because you need to charge it up for like a second before it gains this property, you can't really do it while being mobbed. Ultimately, I don't think either of these weapons are really all that good. Conventional wisdom for this game is to take the White Rose Cluster, but I think the Ice Falcon is a little bit more realistically easy to use, even if it doesn't have the super impressive use cases. Next up are Reimu's weapons. For Marissa, we get the Yin Yang Strike, which is essentially to throw out one of those bouncing yin-yang orbs of your own. Doesn't deflect projectiles, will destroy other yin-yang orbs in the various stages, which is kind of a nice touch, and it does pierce through enemies that it defeats, so you can potentially clear out like a whole bunch of enemies at once with this, but I didn't find it does a whole lot of contact damage to like anything with more durable HP, so it's more of like a trash-clearing weapon. Alice's homing amulet, meanwhile, is basically Mega Man 3's Magnet Missile, 
missile, it fires a shot straight forward that when it finds a target above or below it, it just turns directly up or down. It doesn't actually home, it just turns. So if the enemy is actually in motion and like flying over it, it could turn too late and just like completely miss the enemy. It's also just not impressive in damage. I do think, personally, I slightly prefer the homing amulet because at least there is a couple different bosses in this game, like Romilia and some of the uh, finale bosses that are coming up, where it is actually very, very well adapted to those fights. But the Yin Yang Strike is generally a better weapon and also is effective against several late game bosses, so I don't know. Then we get into uh, fairly usable weapons with Raisin's weapons. If you pick it up as Marissa, you get the Psycho Missile, which is just a straightforward shot that turns into a large explosion. The explosion lingers, it does damage repeatedly, it's capable of dealing with some high HP enemies fairly well, it is good at clearing out like waves of small enemies, it just generally does a good job. Alice, meanwhile, gets Mental Sacrifice, which is basically like lobbing four grenades that will explode on the first enemy or wall they hit. Basically, it just depends on do you want like straightforward power or more like a spread of power. You can really take whichever one you want, except you can't take Marissa's Psycho Missile. There is a boss in the upcoming Patchouli Fortress that is specifically vulnerable to Psycho Missile. And it's worth noting, most bosses in the fortress have multiple weaknesses to different weapons, but in this case the boss that is weak to Psycho Missile is only weak to Psycho Missile, and yeah, it's a good idea to have this one. Next up, we get Sakoya's Knives. Surprise. I'll cover Alice's Quicksilver first here because it is the poorer version of the weapon. It fires four knives in a spread. They're fairly quick. They pierce through enemies. They don't hit directly in front of you, but they hit it kind of like upwards and downwards angles. Technically, this should be a fairly good weapon, and it is for overall use. If you need something for general use, maybe consider the Quicksilver. But honestly, it's better to give up Quicksilver and take Marissa's Thousand Knives here. A Thousand Knives is a time stop ability. For about five seconds after using it, no enemies will move, no stage hazards will activate or move, and also, when it triggers off, there's just going to be knives flying everywhere and damaging everything on screen. The only limitation to Thousand Knives is that its ammunition cost is so high you can only use it four times in a stage. That said, it's really good for panic situations, and there are three different locations in this upcoming fortress that having Thousand Knives can trivialize that are otherwise extremely difficult. Two of them are technically glitches. The glitch is that essentially, if you activate the time stop of Thousand Knives before walking into certain boss fights, you can just walk straight through the boss fight and out the other side and never have the fight actually trigger and lock you into the room. You can literally skip a couple boss fights with some very difficult bosses using this ability if you want, and that's why it's really, really good. <laughs> Next up are Eren's weapons, which both of these are very solid options. Marissa's Black Lotus fires a shot both up and down, and these shots will latch onto the ground or the ceiling and like travel along them once they hit them. Unfortunately, if they hit just a straight wall in front of them, they will be stopped, but they can like go off of cliffs, so to speak, and continue on. Sometimes this lets you hit enemies you can't really hit effectively with other weapons. It's decently powerful, but because it is mainly a shot directly above and directly below you, it doesn't do so great at dealing with enemies that come in the most common spot, which is in front of you. <laughs> Alice's Force Crisis, which is recommended, is a little bit weird in that it hits in a diagonal line like a meteor coming down behind you. 
there's no good way to explain this thing's trajectory. It's just that it's a weapon you literally have to turn your back on the enemy in order for them to be in the line of fire of this weapon. It is an awkward weapon to use, but also it can sometimes get enemies in places that are out of reach, and it is really powerful. Most enemies will go down in one hit to this thing, so fairly highly recommended to take Alice's Force Crisis, but Marissa's Black Lotus isn't that bad either. Next up, Romilia's weapon. Whichever character you take this for, this is an extremely high damage weapon. For Marissa, you gain red magic, which is a shot that you can aim forward or diagonally up or straight up, and it's a bullet that is large and leaves a thick trail behind it. That trail lingers for quite a while and continues to deal damage to enemies. Excluding one or two enemies in the game that will actually deflect this thing, red magic will just like run over most enemies. It lingers for so long in front of you that you can clear the path ahead of yourself. Like, it's a really, really good weapon. It's good for bosses in the fortress. It's suggested to take red magic over Alice's option, the Bloody Curse, just because, like, it is that much better. But Bloody Curse does have some advantages. The Bloody Curse is basically a boomeranging cross that you can throw in any direction you want. It's a little bit short-ranged, but it does pretty high damage. It lingers around for a while. The omnidirectional nature of it is very, very useful. The biggest limitation to Bloody Curse, though, is that you cannot fire it again while it is out. You have to wait for it to boomerang back to you. There's a lot of cases where, yeah, you can take down a bunch of enemies, but you're getting swarmed. You need to be able to deploy another one quickly. Still, either one of these weapons is really good, and if you don't want to use red magic, taking bloody curse isn't a bad idea. Yomu's weapons are pretty much as simple to describe as Yomu herself. Marissa gets the Ghost Cutter. This is just a very short range, but thick width slash attack in front of Marissa herself. It's not really all that powerful, though, and for its absolutely short range, it's kind of bad, which is fine because then it doesn't have to complete with Alice's option for this weapon, which is the Rolling Slash, which is the one you should absolutely take. The Rolling Slash can only be used while jumping, but it creates a slash effect around Alice for a couple seconds as she jumps. This does a ton of damage to enemies. It basically allows you to platform in relative safety. It's not going to block bullets, but it will at least like take down any enemies that would jump at you. It does a ton of damage to anything bulkier if you just get up in its face. There is a boss in the upcoming fortress that is only weak to rolling slash. Like, it's really good. That's why it's so high up this list. But the best weapons in the game happen to be carried by Yuyuko, and this is a difficult choice because both of these are really good weapons. Marissa's Butterfly Stream option is basically an anti-air. It fires off a bunch of butterflies in a random spread that rather than continuing forward, will all arc upwards. Basically making it an anti-air weapon in a game that has a whole lot of stairs and aerial enemies in it. And the fact that it fires off multiple projectiles means it can take out multiple enemies in a single use. It's ammo efficient. Some players consider this to be the best weapon in the game, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. It does, however, have to compete with Alice's Reincarnation Ghost. When I first got this weapon, I thought it was a weaker version of the Rolling Slash. What it does is it summons like a rotating shield of spirit fire around you, which isn't actually a shield, it doesn't block any bullets, but rather any enemies that come into contact with it, one of the spirit fires will disappear and the enemy will take damage from it. The trick is, is that this thing actually has a surprisingly wide range on its activation. The spirits, like, form and fly in further from you than the actual shield does, so you can actually work in relative safety when using this thing. Plus, it's a really good weapon against a fortress boss that is otherwise very annoying. Plus, on top of all of that, 
you can switch to a different weapon while using this one, and it will still keep going. You can even switch over to Marissa and have her protected by this shield. I think players would generally suggest the Butterfly Stream, but I think both of these weapons are very good. In fact, they're both kind of contenders for some of the best weapons in the game, which is why I have this at the top spot. It's just Yuko's weapons for the characters are really, really good. Anyway, that's our arsenal. Let's get back to the game, because we're not going to get any new weapons from here on out, but we do need to put them to use in Patchouli's Library Fortress thing. When we select Patchouli on the main stage, we get a whole Mega Man homage here, where Patchouli is in, like, a chariot dressed up like a UFO. The chariot is dressed up like a UFO, not Patchouli. She flies off to a giant mechanized library fortress that even just has a goofy looking like caricature Patchouli face on it. It's great. Patchouli stage one keeps sort of in line with a Mega Man tradition that the first stage is about you storming into a fortress, and in this case, as we do so, we are going to get swarmed with enemies in a count that no other stage in the game has had to this point, and that I think is actually higher than any future stage either. There is just dozens and dozens of tiny, trivial enemies swarming you during the stage, but we do have different weapons to actually deal with it now, and this is kind of a reminder like, hey, we expect you to be armed come armed. This would be an extremely simple stage if not for the gimmick that pops up in the second half of the stage, which is everybody's most feared gimmick from Mega Man 2, the Quickman lasers. So named for the stage that they initially appeared in, these lasers are essentially a segment where as you fall through these different rooms, there's going to be laser traps that activate on the side of the rooms and cross the screen very, very quickly. You need to race these lasers down to the bottom of each successive screen because these lasers instantly kill you. And I have to say, this section is way more brutal than Mega Man 2's ever was, just in the way it's designed. You have to memorize the exact way down. You can't really just, like, look and react, because if you jump down the wrong location, you may land on a platform and just literally there will not be time to move out of the way of the laser. It's really rough. This is why I said take Marissa's Thousand Knives. You can activate Thousand Knives repeatedly as you descend this section. You will consume basically the entire ammo gauge, but you can literally just not have to deal with this section. The lasers won't activate while time is stopped. And trust me, you want to make it to the bottom of this as safely as possible, because our first fortress boss is Yukari Yakumo, and oh boy. First off, platforms in this section. It's just literally randomly generated platforms coming in all directions from all locations. It's completely random where you can actually stand at any given time. Yukari herself floats in the middle of the stage. She will be briefly vulnerable and fire off a large single bullet at you. Then she will phase out of reality. She will summon Chen and Ran, who will cycle around the outside of the arena, throwing some bullets for a bit. Then they'll pause and dash at you, and then Yukari will become briefly vulnerable again. You can deal with Chen and Ran. You can shoot them down with certain weapons to force Yukari to go vulnerable again quickly, but that can be difficult to do with how random the platforms are, and then getting a good shot on Yukari can be really difficult, depending on where she is. Like, this is a tough, tough boss. Like, even when you're good at this fight, there's a lot of RNG going on on it. It's just the sheer fact of how rarely Yukari is actually vulnerable to damage, and how little damage you can do to her in that time. Don't like this one. 
Stage 2 begins the stage almost immediately with a segment where we have to use Marissa's broom to cross some spikes. In fact, it's a long gap of spikes, and if you die shortly afterwards, you're probably not going to have the energy to use the broom again to get across, which really hones in that this game was inspired by Mega Man 2, because Mega Man 2's fortress also had a big issue where you could end up with a literally uncrossable segment until you game over to refill your weapon energy because you needed to use your items. Anyway, it was it was a big problem in Mega Man 2's late game, and it's a problem in this stage, but at least it's just this stage. But this one rubs it in by putting a 1-up right before this section, so if you do end up weapon screwed, you need to die an additional extra time to get to the game over screen. It, mm. On the better set of ideas that it took from Mega Man 2, there's also a section in this stage where there are fake floors. Those fake floors are over spikes, and that sounds really scary, but as long as you actually don't go busting up the enemies in this stage immediately, you can tell where they walk or don't walk, you can use that to determine, hey, that's actually a hole. Also, if you gave Aaron's weapon to Marissa, the fact that it tracks along the ground can reveal those hidden spots as well, but you don't need it. The boss at the end of this stage is Suika Ibuki, who is basically imitating the Yellow Devil, which the basic idea is that Suika's various mini-me's will fly across the screen or like bounce their way over, and they will form into one giant Suika, who is the actual boss that you can damage for a couple seconds. She will do one attack, like throwing a giant boulder at you or just creating a ton of clusters of bullets, and then she will split back apart and disappear, and the Suikas will come in from the other side. If you happen to have one of her weakness weapons, which happens to be the yin-yang strike or the reincarnation ghost, if you have one of these weapons, it's not going to be that bad because you can deal with her fairly quickly. If you don't, this is going to turn into a long slog of a fight because of how rarely Suika is actually vulnerable and just how difficult it is to perfectly avoid her attacks. Stage 3 throws us a curveball by all of a sudden being a stage from a game we've played before. Tessofro's earlier fan game, Super Marissa Land. Yep, that's right. It's basically kind of more like a Mario stage than a Mega Man stage, except we still control like Mega Man. And this being Super Marissa Land as a parody stage, we only have Marissa for this stage. This is kind of why it's important to make sure that you vary up how many weapons you give each character and make sure they're a little armed, because spoiler, stage 4 is going to require you to use Alice alone. Really though, they give you a break here, this stage is actually very easy, because you do only have half the health that you normally have in a sense. Then we take a teleporter and we end up in a room where we fight a copy of Marissa, who literally just runs around, occasionally jumps, fires starlight missiles, but when she hits 50% of her HP, a super mushroom will fly down from the ceiling and land on her, and now we get Mega Marissa in all of her lanky, terrifying glory, jumping around, I, I don't make this up, uh, firing giant laser beams from her face. She's ridiculous, she is very high damage, she's a very simple boss fight, but you'd better have grabbed the Psycho Missile to take care of her quickly, because uh, she will take care of you very quickly.
Alice's solo time in Stage 4 unfortunately doesn't have as much to talk about. The stage is all reused assets and challenges. It's just, hey, now you only have Alice to do it with. When we reach the end of the stage, we get a fight against Shikiaiki Yamayama Ding Dong, who is standing up at a judge's podium in the middle of a courtroom on the side of the screen. We have a jury full of fairies uh, harassing us throughout this fight. They literally will, like, jump out of the stands to come at us, or just, like, throw random bullets. Mostly, though, Aiki is hiding out as... Technically, she's extremely vulnerable, because she never moves. But she does have a variety of different weapons inspired by her Phantasmagoria Flower View moveset, like trying to catch you in a narrowing spread of projectiles, or dropping giant swords at you, or... Well, this one isn't POFV-inspired. Literally summoning Komachi to bounce across the arena in her boat. If you happen to have the rolling slash, though, just go stand under her, jump, and just slap her in the face with a sword. Apparently that works really well. In Stage 5, we have to deal with a small gauntlet of the different mini-boss characters that we've run into, like specifically the Prism River Sisters, who I didn't even mention. And then we have to refight all the bosses. This is a Mega Man tradition, the idea being that you'll run into a room that is just eight different teleporters. Each teleporter takes you to a different boss fight that you've already been through, and you have to marathon them all in one stage. Sounds pretty horrifying, but now we do have all these different weapons. We have both of our characters back together. As long as you actually have figured out which weapons work on each character really, really well, the bosses will go down quickly and they won't be nearly as bad as the first time you fought. And of course, every boss does drop a large health refill when defeated, so that, that helps a ton. Afterwards, we finally get our fight with Patchouli herself. The little librarian has rotating lasers that we do need to uh, pay attention to and try to dodge, and then she has a bunch of other moves inspired by her immaterial and missing power moveset, like spinning blades and fireballs and yada yada. It's just a fairly varied boss fight. If Again, if you have rolling slash, just run into her and just slap her in the face with Alice and she'll go down really quick before she can even do too much damage, which is really important because um, after all of this boss gauntlet, Patchouli isn't actually the final fight in this stage. We need to travel to the next room and fight the Patchouli machine, which is this giant battleship thing. It's modeled after the final bosses of traditional Mega Man games, which tended to be like a giant floating skull mech. In this case, the Patchouli machine is basically a tank and fires a bunch of attacks that you would expect, kind of like a tank from Toho, of course. So we have like giant wind slashes, we have explosives, we have like just general bullet spam to deal with. It also has two entire life bars to get through that have different attacks to learn. I really suggest looking into the different weaknesses that this boss has, because if you use its weakness weapons, you can at least take it down very, very quickly, because it is a gigantic target. And also, if you fail to bring it down really, really quickly, you will get taken back to before you fought Patchouli herself. Never mind her machine. <laughs> it's a boss gauntlet, and then a boss gauntlet. It's rough. But that's not the end of the game, because this is a Toho game. Of course there's six stages. Stage six is very, very short. In fact, the only enemy in it is just Koakuma making an appearance as, like, one final blockade. She's just there as a speed bump. Then we get a parody of the other traditional Mega Man final boss, which is Patchouli and her floating saucer. And basically, just like the Dr. Wily fights that inspired this, the saucer is going to teleport to random locations and fire a variety of different projectiles at you in different formations. Because it can appear pretty much anywhere on the screen, you would expect that, hey, I should use weapons that can hit high targets, like the butterfly stream, or the homing amulet, and yes, not only is that smart for the purpose of hitting the boss, but also that happens to be the boss's various weaknesses, so use them. 
After that, the saucer crashes off screen, and we go to chase it down, and then it actually starts rumbling and comes back up atop a giant mechanized patchouli. This final boss is really kind of goofy. You just have to hit it in its face with various weapons, and it has a few different weaknesses. The big threat in this fight is that it is very damaging. It is very scary in that regard. It can take you down very quickly. Its attacks are very well telegraphed, though. The scariest one is that at about half health, it goes invincible, starts flashing blue for a few seconds and then fires like a laser beam version of itself across the screen and if you don't perfectly time your jump on the highest platform it will hit you and the damage it does is about 75% of a character's HP so ideally you do both these fights with one character so that the other character can be swapped in to tank this or at least survive if you fail to dodge but if you can get through that you can take out Mecha Patchouli and that does it the battle's over the game shows Marissa running back home with a bag full of books over her shoulder, and it starts talking about peace returning to the land at last. Congratulations, you're our hero, Marissa. Also, hi, Alice. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Just, this game has completely downplayed the fact that Alice just happens to be there. And then our final cut shot is of Marissa coming back to her house from the title screen, except the patchouli saucer has crashed into it. And that's it. That's the end of the game. Now that we're at the end of the game, as you would expect for the Toho series, I do want to focus a little bit on the music of this game. Now, this this game's soundtrack is really, really interesting because it isn't really Toho, and most of the time it's not really Mega Man either. The usual route for Toho fan games is to just remix and rearrange Zun's tracks, which, you know, works really well. It gives it the very Toho spirit, like it's what people expect. And choosing to take your own original compositions instead is it can be a little bit risky sometimes it just the thing is is when you're contrasting it to the music of the toho series failing to deliver a similar level of high quality catchiness kind of suffers and i think most of the main stages in this game sort of fail at pulling that off and they also sort of fail at pulling off the Mega Man half of things too because if you don't know Mega Man music i'll i'll tell you straight up Mega Man music is generally very highly respected, it's a high standard to duel against. That isn't to say it wasn't pulled off sometimes in this game. Even if a lot of the stage themes don't manage it, a lot of the interlude stuff, like the stage select clip that I had played earlier for you, feels right on par for Mega Man. It's just kind of some of the in-stage stuff doesn't quite deliver. But in the face of that, I still managed to find three tracks that I do really, really enjoy and wanted to specifically highlight here. First off, I want to highlight Remilia's stage. The stage is trash, yeah, but as you would expect from diving into a vampiress's castle, it's basically a Castlevania track here. We get a very, very Castlevania energy. We get an interplay of like hard guitar, but also like an organ just going off in the back. It's super effective at conveying Romilia's characters. I think there's hints of some of the actual Toho 6 music weaved in in this one in particular. It's just, this is a really nice track.
Next up, I want to actually highlight the final boss theme, which is also the title screen theme of this game. So first off, kind of a sucker for the whole thing where the final boss track of a game calls back to the like the game's main theme. But also, this track in general just is really, really good. The intro really ramps you up. The energy is really high like this. This song gets you pumped for the finale of this game, and it works really well. Finally, we come to the track that I wish embodied this game's soundtrack, because this is exactly what I think this game should have sounded like, and it's the theme for Patchouli Fortress Stage 5. This stage is blessed with just a ton of Toho energy to it, right down to literally using the famous Zune trumpets. It is still an original composition. The energy of it is also solidly Mega Man. There's some sound choices that pop up here and there that are straight up Mega Man. It also just absolutely feels like it belongs as a Toho Stage 5, which hey, this is the fifth stage of the fortress. If the entire game soundtrack had this level of execution and fusion of the ideals of Toho and Mega Man, wow, this would have been a hell of an OST. Unfortunately, this is the special exception, but please give it a listen. How do I feel about Mega Mario overall? It's a pretty good game. There's some rough edges to it, and I'm not just talking about visually. I didn't even get into the fact that like some of the tile set design on this game is rough, to say the least. It's really kind of amateur in places. Like, the stage design is kind of basic. I do think there's times where this game relies on enemy spam, but man, there's some real standout parts here. Like, the boss fights do feel really, really good. The weapons, I love the fusion of Mega Man and Toho here, because the Toho characters have always had really, really creative ability sets in terms of, like, their patterns and visuals. So it gives us some of, like, 
I wish some of the Mega Man games had weapon sets that are as good as this one, even if the mechanic can kind of create some situations where players screw themselves a little bit. I don't know. This is a game full of ups and downs. I don't know if I'd recommend somebody uses this to get into the Toho series or the Mega Man series, but maybe. Maybe if you're already familiar with one of the two of these, this might give you something to latch onto you could enjoy as a fan of one moving into the other. There's, there's enough common ground there to feel at home while getting this very different experience, so... I don't know, overall a thumbs up. Maybe not a super, 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 like, enthusiastic thumbs up, but you know what? Megamari's pretty alright by me. Anyway, for the next episode of the Immaterial and Missing podcast, it's not going to be April Fool's. I, I know, I could take the joke a lot further, but I'll be really clear here for anybody who might have gotten this far and was maybe a little worried that I was going a little crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm still doing a Mega Man podcast, don't worry. I actually sent out a poll to people, like, a couple weeks ago, asking whether they were more interested in a parallel universe or a fever dream, and a parallel universe won, and so I played Megamari as just a bonus episode. Despite the fact this was uploaded on April Fool's Day, I am going to leave it here, and it's just a bonus episode. This isn't going to interrupt the main upload frequency. If you are listening to it when it has gone up, the next episode of one of my podcasting for will go up every other Monday as expected, so yep. Brace yourselves, Mega Man X is in just a few days, and I hope I didn't leave you too confused, because I have a feeling that much of the audience listening to this episode doesn't really know Toho characters and stuff, but I do think that there's a ton of really cool stuff in here from a Mega Man perspective that it was worth some looking at. If you want to get in touch and yell at me about how unfunny this April Fool's Day joke was, I'm available at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com, I'm on Twitter at what am I podcast for, as in the number four. You can find this on your favorite podcast provider of choice, or you can go to waipf.podbean.com to get all the uploads as they go up. Thanks for listening, and remember, there probably was a parallel universe where I made the decision to do a Toho podcast instead, but we're not living in that one. I was going to come up with a punchline, but um, you know what? Reality's kind of a punchline some days, isn't it? Yeah, that'll do. Just remember, reality's a punchline sometimes. Oh, oh god, oh god, this episode is going so long. This is just supposed to be a bonus episode. What have I done?